Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 130. The Weekly Word Podcast is an ultra-endurance resource. On this podcast, we talk more than just training. Each episode, I try to dive into all the aspects of ultra-endurance. Training and its modalities, strength, recovery, nutrition, mindset, and sleep. I train some of the most extreme endurance athletes in the world. But there's a nuance. Most of them also will have a full-time job and family. Not only are their adventures extreme, but they all went pro in something other than ultra-endurance. This week, we return to the original format, not only discussing some of the current topics in the ultra-endurance world, but also answering some emails and questions many of you have had. But before we go into that, I wanted to share some thoughts that were going through my head last week. Of course, we'll start with the current climate regarding COVID-19 and the disruption to our daily lives. I wanted to share an email I sent to all of my athletes with all of you. Barring some extraordinary good luck, I believe we have some very rough months ahead of us. Besides the obvious health concerns, there's also an inevitable economic uncertainty as a wave of illness disrupts normal life in many countries simultaneously. Schools are closed, most of us have children home, so training becomes slightly more complex given the changes in schedule. Many of you are also home from work, putting this all in even tighter quarters. That said, training is exactly what we all need. Not only for the obvious health reasons with stronger immune systems and overall resistance, but also for our sanity. As I so often preach on this podcast, taking care of yourself, your health, your mindset, and anxiety allows you to be a better partner, parent, remote coworker, or leader. Allow yourself to have your time, then you have more to give to others. It's remarkable how this works. Most pools are closed, some gyms as well. Get outside, breathe the fresh air, spend time in nature, exhale be grateful, and return to the current circumstances with a shifted mindset. Hike, run, cycle, mountain bike, gravel bike, open water swim. Feel alive. We in this endurance community can continue to be a beacon of health outside in nature, of resilience, and in the logistics of balancing the three-legged stool. All, of course, with the proper social distancing, which running, cycling, and open water swimming of course, allow. AIM Camp is still on for those of you wondering. Given that most events are closed for two-ish weeks, we'll still have some leeway. We shall see how this advances in the next 10 to 14 days. Camp is outdoors and plenty of social distance. Again, open water swimming, trail running, and cycling in beautiful Sonoma County. I'm happy to open up to more athletes given how many of you might be cooped up at home. For now, stay healthy Continue to train. Continue to bring out the athlete version of yourselves. Remember your desired future outcomes. Train towards them with clarity and purpose. And dance with difficulties along the way. How will this time phase make me stronger? A better human being? Let's find out. So that's what I wrote to all my athletes. And it sort of captures my thoughts with regards to the current environment. It's difficult. And we're going through some challenging times. But again, how will we come out stronger? 
How will we learn from this and become better athletes and better overall human beings from this adversity we face together and we led the way on, that we remain strong and resilient as well as focused on what the task at hand is. And that's what I'm extremely proud about for all of my athletes and all of you listening because I know in this community, we do carry some weight with regards to health, fitness, and just our ability to balance. Hopefully, you all will get through this time in a successful, healthy manner and feel good about how you handled yourself and carried yourself through all the diversity and the adversity as well as diversity in these troubling times to stand tall and show your kids, show your coworkers, show your community how being calm and being fit and being on top of it was leading the way. This brings me to my second point on what I observed over the last two, three weeks since I've last podcasted. And I'm curious, what is our purpose? What brings this group together? Why are we listening? This came across my mind, obviously, with the last you know, 10 days and COVID-19 and everything happening around us. But also I had a, I had a conversation with Emily and a variety of her surgeons two weeks ago on what our desired outcome, I still use that word even in everyday life when people say goals, <laughs> is with her surgery. And I'll dive into that a little bit later, but I wanted to discuss purpose and purpose of this ultra endurance community and purpose of AIMP in general. Now, my purpose as a coach is simple. It's my mission statement, helping you achieve your outcomes that were on the far edge of reality in a systematic and healthy way, right? For you to achieve outcomes in an ultra endurance and endurance manner or in an event or an adventure or expedition that you seem to think is just a little bit too much and be able to achieve that with confidence and health and clarity so that you can grow from there knowing that you can take on almost any ultra endurance adventure if we give ourselves enough lead time and smart prep. But what is our purpose, our community? Why do we talk about this? What is our ideal? We all went pro in something other than endurance sports. Yet we still want to maintain our athletic primal selves. We want to express ourselves, our athletic self, despite our busy lives, career, and family. We want to have an athletic self, more specifically an endurance athletic self. That is what bonds us. That we still have an athletic self in us that we want to bring out, that we want to bring forth. Not in the intense way of our teens or 20s, which for some of you, is okay, I was there too. But instead, to figure out this part of ourselves, we have a career and understanding how that works and can can unfold. We know what our career means, we know where it's taking us, we know how to execute it well. We might even have a family. But beyond that, we are not washed up old as athletes. We can still compete, be fit, strong, confident, powerful, connected, feel alive, and take on adventures. I believe our purpose is to bring forth our athletic self on a daily basis in prep for a future endeavor, adventure, race, event, 
in order to still connect with that endurance physical self of ours and to answer that call when our friends, kids, spouses, colleagues, or even others in this community call that we can go, that we are fit and strong and powerful to be part of that life again. Despite our family, community, and professional obligations, we can. I am part of this with you to bring forth that athlete within us, to be physical, to be primal, but also to ignite the mental and spiritual side that comes with this. No, not always on a daily basis. That's unrealistic. We all have our lives, school and kids and drop-off and work and projects and meetings and grocery shopping, etc. But occasionally there is that adventure, that experience, that event, where we can allow that endurance athlete from within to rise to the surface, to be physical, and to tap into that deeper mental and spiritual connection. And we kick out on the other side more confident, powerful, secure in our knowledge that it's there within us, that we have cared for that piece of us, that we can still be vocal, scream, and put forth its true character, itself. And so what is our purpose? That is who we are. We want that choice. What brings this group together is our collective agreement that we want that endurance expression, that we still have an athletic self to compete externally or internally, that we still can and will to carry that swagger of knowing we still have amazing within us and ahead of us. Of course, this is not easy. And it requires discipline and a deep commitment to personal excellence. And so this week, listening to surgeons in a variety of offices, they talked of Emily's surgery and how many years ago this was not repaired, reconnected. It was left to be. But today there's us, all of us, those of us who still want to perform, to still express their athletic selves in an older age bracket. Not for Olympic glory, but for our own internal glory. For the satisfaction of connecting to that athletic self frequently enough that we still can and will. Not limited by such an injury, but return to that place in nature connected with our body, mind, and spirit. Today they do this surgery because of us. Because of the older athlete who's still an athlete. And in the past, they would just allow it to heal, reconnect itself with scar tissue. Yes, and be very limited in its future output, that muscle, that hamstring, for example. Could you ever properly run again? No. Could you run somewhat? Yes. But you couldn't be your athletic self. You couldn't run on trails for many hours outside on nature. You couldn't be your best at riding your bike and so forth. And there's enough of us that changed that, that allowed this surgery to happen. Emily ended up working with one of the most experienced surgeons in the world on this. He's the surgeon for the Golden State Warriors. He did Kevin Durant's ankle just a few months ago, or no, excuse me, a few years ago. And he's he, as experienced as he is, has only done 20 to 25 of these hamstring surgeries in his life where you anchor onto the hip bone and then connect the hamstring back up 
with the suture, with the um, connections and anchor them back on the bone and allow that to grow back. 20 to 25. And that's in the last 10, 12 years where they decided to do this surgery for more frequent, um, more frequently versus just Olympic athletes or professional athletes. And so not a very common surgery, but one they no longer have questions about with, do we do it for older athletes? And that's what got me thinking about this, that there is a big community of us. There, there's many of us with that same purpose that unites us, that we all believe we still have amazing with us, within us, ahead of us, and that we can and will express ourselves as our endurance athletes that we are. With that being said, I am going to dive right into a lot of emails and a lot of topics in order to um, just get further into, hey, this list of email questions, which I think are all quite valuable, but also to continue on our theme this week of just dispensing good quality ultra-endurance knowledge and insights and training tips. I have, um, of course, I have some nutrition questions here too, but let's dive into Matt. Your podcast has been a lighthouse of my endurance journey. Wow, that's a nice way to put it. I seem to drift away but find myself back guided by your light. Thank you. I'm starting my training for the Berlin Marathon, aka my first marathon. Awesome one to do as your first. Berlin's amazing. Amazing city in general. I had a few quick hit questions if it isn't too much trouble. I did my five, number one, I did my five times one mile test yesterday. I would greatly appreciate if you can check if my zones are set correctly, as I've shown in the spreadsheet. That being said, I'm not going to dive into that here on the podcast. Number two, running seems to be a natural antihistamine of mine. Anything you know, oh, seems to be a natural antihistamine of mine. Anything you know to help deal with a runny nose while running? My best guess is just to carry a cloth, but wasn't sure if you know a trade secret. Well, this is very similar to swimming, um, especially in open water or outdoor pools. When you're running, of course, you're going to take on and be out in nature and the pollen and the dust and the things flying around are going to have a bigger reaction, a greater reaction to you and your nasal passages because you're taking deeper breaths and you're breathing heavier in order to do said activity will instigate, I should say, aggravate that um, sort of sensitivity. You might have a form of a light form of hay fever or some sort of allergies, seasonal allergies. And so that's quite common when we're running and especially swimming. People are often surprised in swimming how they're stuffed up, especially their nasal passages. And again, pollen and dust sits on the top of the water surface. So as we're swimming, very often it is that that goes directly into our nasal passages and into our throat. And not that we're swallowing water, but it's just right there and it is affecting us and we're face, our face is in it. So that also answers for many of you swimmers wondering why you're always stuffed up post pool. Now, again, seasonal allergies, things like that, they, they ebb and flow. And then a lot of people are also allergic or have a reaction to chlorine, um, whether in their nose or mouth or so forth. And so that stuffs them up a little bit too. Nothing unusual. Number three, any huge merit to racing in race shoes? 
Right now, I train in the on-cloud flyers, but was considering getting a pair of race shoes. If so, when should, when should training in the race shoes be incorporated? Am I putting the cart before the horse on this given, it's my first marathon? Um, no, but a valid question. So I would definitely try to run in my race shoes or what I plan to run for a marathon. Remember, it's a marathon on pavement. So the racing flats shouldn't be quite as flat as what you might see for 5K runners or 10K runners. That's a lot thinner sole and is designed for higher uh, turnover and faster running where you're landing less on your heels in general. Um, The faster you run, the more you're on the midfoot and front of your foot. And so therefore, the less of a buildup, many would argue, needed for the heel. And so some of those racing flats are A, incredibly light, and B, um, not a lot of padding. A lot of times they're also running that on the track or special surface and so forth. So that's the first part. You want to stay away from those type of shoes for a marathon. Maybe you do have a lighter pair of shoes or less cushioning or, you know, even let's say those of you that are spending the money on the vapor flies or whatever from Nike, the two, $300 shoes. Not really what I would recommend at that level, um, even if it's your first or 10th marathon, because as you saw, hopefully in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, really great article about how the buildup on extra cushion shoes has an effect on the ankle stability and balance and that there's a lot more injuries due to them and the pronation and such. So take a look at that. And if you do need to find that article, feel free to send me an email and I will share it with you because I saved it. But that being said, um, once a week, I would do uh, uh, one of my runs, tempo runs, race prep runs for a marathon. I often do those in my racing flats or similar to the shoes that I would wear come race day. And knowing, let's say, in six months from now or four months from now that I might have a different pair of shoes, but very similar, either either the same or similar in build up. And so let's say I have a 10 mile tempo run or I have a run of three by four mile build. So let's say I'm out for a 15 mile run of which in that are three, four minute, four mile increases. So the first four mile increases from medium speed to faster than race pace. So let's say you're looking to hold a seven minute mile at a marathon. You start the first mile at around 7.30 and you end the fourth mile around 6.30. So you're, you're moving from slower to faster, a build throughout those four miles. And I would do three of those and let's say uh, a mile easy in between. Um, because you remember you're resetting at easier than marathon pace so it's not that hard to hold Um, and yeah so that's a run i would do in race flats or excuse me race shoes but for sure you want to break them in you want to feel comfortable and quite honestly there's a psychological effect don't forget it's fun to run fast or feel good running and race shoes and doing a good run tempo run or race prep run or race simulation run in the right shoes and running fast and a little bit more effortlessly not completely effortlessly but more effortlessly is fun and so take that i mean that's fun with motivation that's fun with feeling the progress of your training and just feeling really connected sort of in that flow Uh, number four in my swimming days I needed a lot of taper, three to four weeks. Should I expect the same for the marathon? Any quick guidance here would be appreciated. Well, that's a good question. It's hard to say. Um, 
if it translates, I in swimming, um, what did I need? Eh, I don't know what kind, what I needed. That's the funny thing. In, in swimming, I knew myself so little um, and I relied on my coaches so much <laughs> that I don't even know what kind of taper I needed. Um, I do know that if it was too long, I felt disconnected. But was that 10 days? Was that three days? Was that two weeks? I do know that I swam very, very well in um, just out of training, dual meet season, especially in college. Um, and that my drop off to tapered times and CAAs and so forth was not as dramatic as many others. So, um, so this is something you would have to find out for yourself. That depends also what your training stress was with swimming versus the training stress of running. Is the volume and fatigue and the wear and tear of the body the same? Because I would know that if you're a D1 swimmer, which it says on the background below, grew up club swimming, one of the slowest in the pool compared to D1 national qualifiers and speed came primarily from training rather than talent. It's a question of what your volume was. And so if your volume for swimming was quite high, which a lot of us were when we were younger, then yeah, you need a longer taper right, to really get that fatigue out of your system and build up that freshness. If currently you're an athlete that doesn't have that much time to train and um, has other stresses in their lives, but the training time is limited, I don't know, how long does it take you to get fresh? I would surely just follow a simple, generic, reliable training plan in the beginning trust their taper, and then adjust from that for your next marathon. It's hard to know what the first data point will ever be. Number five, do you have any running form resources you can recommend? YouTube videos, etc. I would just um, Google or search on YouTube, Miranda Carfrey, Matt Steinmetz running, and you will see a beautiful running stride. Miranda Carfrey is what I use as a textbook running style. Um, very clean posture, very powerful posture, very efficient posture. Um, not one of those gazelle type of runners where it's just unrelatable for us, but just a good, clean running form. I also like a lot of Sage Canada's uh, running form videos and inputs and his coach and his girlfriend, they run a business together. Um, they're coaching. Um, I definitely recommend that. He does a great job in explaining it and really diving into it. But yeah, those two should help you for now. So let me check if there's anything else in there, some swimming background, started listening to your podcast, signed up for Sonoma Ironman in 2018, but got destroyed by work three months out of competition. That's a bummer. Um, decided I wasn't a good spot to race at the level I wanted. Okay, well, hold on. That's actually something interesting here. Started listening to your podcast in August and September of 2017. Signed up for the Sonoma Ironman in 2018, but got destroyed by work three months out of competition. Two months of 14 to 20 hour work days, five to six days a week. I love my, I loved my banking job and decided I wasn't in a good spot to compete at the level I wanted. So dropped out of the race. All right, you guys and gals. Um, just want to make sure here, and this is me really putting forth my opinion and my perspective onto you. Now, you can roll your eyes and just say, whatever, Chris. But the opportunity to learn and race an Ironman is invaluable. 
Now, I'm not sure what it means here, um, how many hours you did actually get in and what kind of training you got in for the Sonoma Ironman, but the opportunity to race and to learn and observe and feel it and suffer and apply yourself and nutrition and hydration and taper and training plan, all that is valuable if you ever decide to do another one. Um, and so therefore, the reason I bring this up, those key words in this, sen- in this sentence, decided I wasn't in a good spot, which is fine. If you don't want to race when you're not in a good spot, that's totally fine. At the level I wanted to, well, that is expectations. And as your first Ironman, there should be no expectations. There should be just going through with the experience. And so hopefully um, the lesson there is don't give up on a chance to do something like this. Life might get in the way. Events might get in the way for the rest of our lives. Things will get in the way. It never gets easier. There's never all of a sudden more time. And just play the scenario out in your head. What happens if you never get another chance to do an Ironman? Even if you had two months of crazy bad training because of work, and you maybe had three, four weeks to do a short little reconnect with your fitness from prior and just sort of work your way, suffer your way, low expectations through an Ironman. What happens if an injury limits you from ever taking part in an Ironman or life situation with work or where you are with work or with children or you have a child that has special needs and therefore you don't have time going forward? I'm I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here. I'm trying to highlight the fact that we have these opportunities to do things that are meaningful and can last with us for the rest of our lives. And we don't want to pass them up due to expectations of a level that I want to compete at. It's it's something I try to explain to all my athletes all the time and anybody I come across that the opportunity to do these things is a gift. And if we put too much expectations or on, on our performance or on our outcome or how we want to be perceived coming out of it, I guess that's what I'm trying to say, then we might never get the chance to really put it forward. And I just came across something the other day about this. And it sort of captured that. In this case, it talked about good habits and leadership and so forth. But I thought of it from an endurance athlete perspective, because when perfectionists want to adopt new habits, they tend to fall into one of three categories. And let's say we're not perfectionists, but just we have expectations of ourselves. We have, as we we're just learning, um, a level of competition that we want to show up as a person a persona who we want to be. They bite off more than they can chew and their plans are too onerous to manage. Okay, they avoid starting any habit unless they are 100% sure they can hit their goal, right? In this case, every day, which leads to procrastination. So this is the first of the categories. Unless you're 100% able to do it the way you want to do. Again, I'm projecting here. I'm not trying to say that this person was in a situation where they were trying to be 100%. Maybe it was that their level of fitness was just not, was questionable to even finish it. Totally but I'm, I'm bringing this up because there's plenty of athletes who turn down an opportunity to race because they feel that they're not ready yet to end, for, especially for their first, to experience an Ironman. 
And this leads to procrastination because if there's, you're always waiting to be 100%, you never get a chance to do it. And so it would be a bummer to miss out on a, your first Ironman, your first marathon, your first 50K because of expectations you put on to yourself. This is the perfectionism piece again, right? The one we talked about many weeks ago with not wanting to let perfect get in the way of still doing it. Flexibility is a hallmark of psychological health. You need to have a capacity to take a day off from the gym when you're sick. (laughs) We've heard that before. Or just got off a late flight, even if it means breaking a streak. Be realistic with yourself. You're not going to be perfect. You should also be able to shift away from habits that were once important to your productivity or skill development, but that you've outgrown. Right? Don't spend your time on things in training that are no longer serving you. What is serving you is your prescription, are your current zones, are your current wattages, is your focus towards the next event and maximizing the limited training time you have. Don't just train to train, train deliberately, train focused. And then, and this is a debate I have with so many athletes, then don't train. And what I mean by that is, You don't have to just train to train. You don't have to fill in hours. That doesn't make you more fit. Now, there is an accumulation of volumes that at some point later in the week, you can do certain work or certain prescription on the fatigue body that we're looking to be fatigued for super long ultra endurance events, let's say 100 mile runs or Ironman, the runoff of the bike and so forth. But don't just fill time in order to get more training volume. Instead, do the work as prescribed, focus on recovery, the bigger workload, the bigger training, the bigger stimulus is coming. It always is. It always is. Listen to your body, be rational with what you need, pay attention. And in this case, as we're talking in this example, try, just try to think, Will I, am I missing an opportunity here to take part in an event that I might ever have a chance to do again? And again, no expectations. It's my first Ironman. So sorry for that little side note. So decided to look at swimming and running, signed up for a six-mile swim at Hyde Park in 2019, ultra set. Probably didn't train enough for the swim event, but wanted to actually do something I signed up for. <laughs> there you go. Didn't want to repeat Sonoma. Slightly over goal time, low expectations to start. Good. But I was almost dead at the end. This was the day after I quit my job to go back to school for a master's, then focused on an ultra run, built up pretty well and had some good long runs as well as 50 minutes. Um, And then two weeks out, I tweaked a tendon in my ankle. I didn't think it was as bad as it really was. So didn't do the proper recovery, learn my lesson. So I didn't end up racing the ultra. So here we are. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Think about our opportunities to train and our windows to train. And so many things have to go right for us to get to a start line of some of these ultra endurance events. Because all the training leading up to it, along with life, along with family, along with career, along with the universe getting in the way or potentially getting in the way, lines up to a lot of time for just one day in the future being healthy at the start line and it all working out. And that, I tell you, is either what training smart is or good 
work with your coach in order to navigate this difficulty that we're all trying to figure out. How do I get to the start line of something in a year and a half from now, in the Olympic world, four years from now, in our world, many times six or eight months from now, healthy, fit, motivated, strong, durable, excited, right? How do I do that? Despite full-time job, despite full-time family, despite community activities, despite vacations and other things and needs and health and viruses around the world and limited this and limited that. That's the challenge. That's why our situation as ultra endurance athletes, as masters is so unique. And that's why this is so special and so fun. And why this category of what we're doing here and why we're all listening to this creates this group and community that we're in. Because we all know it's way harder to do it this way than when we were in our 20s or in our teens and had a lot less responsibility, had a lot more time, didn't have a family, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have all the things going on, didn't have a career, didn't have professional obligations, didn't have to serve in our community, didn't have to do all those things. And not a question of have to, a lot of these things we sign up for and volunteer for, but you know what I mean. And so here we are, and yet we're still trying to be ultra endurance athletes. That's half the fun. All right, another email. Let's see here from Diana. Hi, Chris. Glad to see you're more active on Instagram now. I have a question, a couple of questions. You can answer them here on the podcast, but I finally caught up with the last 10 episodes. Boy, you have quite a year with your rib injuries, and I hope that's the last of it. Yeah, I've had the last of it. Those rib injuries have not come up. So question one, I'm coming back from a C-section about 12 weeks after having a baby. I'm slowly getting into running, but taking time to strengthen my core, arms, and legs. It's incredible what six weeks of walking only will do to your body and strength. My goal this year is to run a 24-hour race in November. I have an incredible coach who is absolutely fantastic, and she's rebuilding me from the ground up. What I'm wondering, though, is how do I work on my mental game? I picked a loop. I picked a mile loop course because of my PTSD post two tours in Iraq. Wow. Um, that caught me off guard. <laughs> um, I cannot go uh, do an out and in or, okay, I'm sorry, but this is written hard to read. I cannot do an out and in or a point to point through the woods because I am not sure how that will affect me. I know I can run. Sarah will definitely take care of that part. And I am sure she can coach me towards my mental strength too. But I would like to hear what advice you would have for how to prepare. I would like to be as successful as possible because I'm planning to raise money for a PTSD foundation. My background, I've been running for 13 years with close to 100 races under my belt to include 10 marathons and 350Ks. So we're looking to do a 24-hour race, which is a different animal. Um, so the question here would be, what kind of 24-hour race is it? There's 24-hour races that are on a track. There's 24-hour races that are on loops. Let me just see here. I picked a mile loop course. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> I picked a mile loop course. So it's a 24-hour race with a mile loop course. So is there a way to get on that course prior in order to make your get yourself familiar with it and therefore not struggle with it? The other thing to keep in mind is running at night, 24 hours. 
You could be anywhere in the world when you're running at night. That's the beauty of running at night. Or in some cases, it can be difficult because you might be bothered by that with regards to the PTSD. I would practice running at night in the dark. I don't think these loops are very hilly or have much of a hill on it. So it would be good to get a video or get a good sense of that course and then simulate it where you are. Simulate it at home, simulate it, or not at home, but you know what I mean, in your general area. But hopefully you can get on the course. I would 100% recommend getting there, getting to where the course is, driving there, spending a day, seeing it during the day, maybe videotaping it while you're running, meaning on your iPhone, and then possibly doing the same thing at night or just getting familiar with the loop and therefore understanding how it would feel at night and then finding similar at home. That would be the number one priority and be the best priority because you're simulating the exact thing. Maybe it's close enough that you can get there frequently, meaning once a month to practice some of your long runs on it. But if you can't, hopefully there's some video or the race organizer or the organizers can send you something, maybe a GPX file or so forth. And again, you familiarize yourself with the type of course that it will be so that you have it in your mind. And when you close your eyes, a one mile course, you can build up a vision aspect that you can close your eyes and see yourself running that during the day, during the morning, during lunchtime what the aid stations will look like, what your, not aid stations, what your crew area and aid area will look like, how your support will be there, what it will look like when they're cheering from the sideline, what it will feel like in the late afternoon, in dusk, dark hours, what it will be like at night, what it will be like when you're running with that headlamp, what it will be like as the sun comes up, all those things. You want to go through every single one of those things. And you do Yes, you do 100% have the ability to do this well enough that come event day in November, there is nothing unfamiliar to it of the course of that one mile loop to you that you almost see yourself running in a movie that you already know the ending, that you know how this will unfold, you know how it will feel, you know how it will fatigue you at night or in the morning or in the afternoon or the boredom, all those things. The beauty of visualizing something like this and the way you're going about it, hopefully, because if you have a chance, of course, again, to get on the course, that makes it easier. You visualize it and you simulate on it to reinforce your visualization. Now you've done all the scenarios. But if you don't have a chance, but you have a good idea of what it will look like, and the day before you get there, before the event starts, maybe you get a chance to run a mile on that course. Then again, this is all just reinforcing what you've trained for. And the mind is in no way stressed, uncertain, curious, on edge, anxious towards what you're about to do. If done well enough, you should know every pebble on that course. And even if you've never been there, but you've visualized it well enough and you felt it well enough and you feel seen it in your mind well enough. And again, at night, you could be anywhere. It's just you and that headlamp. So for a lot of this November, probably 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of nighttime, approximately, you will have half of your 24 hour run that will be looking through the headlight headlamp. So that's something to consider as well. 
So in your training, knowing that you're only getting ready for 12 hours without the headlamp and familiarizing with yourself with the course of that. But as soon as it gets dark, you could be back home on your training loop. In this case, visualization and prepping for it and simulating and reinforcing the visualization is what I would highly recommend. For my last man standing athletes, I do very similar. We get either on the course or we get a GPX file of the course or we get a good enough data input and insight so that we can mimic the course. And then it's just a question of it, the movie um, playing in your mind prior. And soon enough, you'll find that yes, there is a way to that the event unfolds the way you already saw it unfold months ago. And then it's totally familiar. I hope that helps. Uh, let's see the next part here. Question two, I'm debating on taking the USASTF certified course on becoming a running coach. I heard in one of your episodes, you mentioned that it would be nice if coaches shared their experiences and training. Like I said before, I've been running for 13 years and have been leading various fitness programs for the Navy for 19 years. But it seems that no one wants to work with me unless I have a paper to prove that I know what I'm doing, even if it's a certificate from an online course. So my question is, do you have any recommendations on how to become a badass coach of a coach as you are? Um, I don't. (laughs) Sorry for that flippant answer. Um, One, I never intended to become a coach. Um, I was perfectly moving through my finance career. And then this coaching thing came up, was thrown into my lap, a bunch of buddies of mine asking me to coach them. And going back to the way I see the world, um, I said in order for them to do it seriously, they have to put some skin into the game. Um, And then therefore, I'll feel guilty because they're putting skin into the game of not delivering. And that's sort of how it started with coaching three buddies of mine, who next week, I'm going to one of their second wedding, the same three guys I've known for, you know, in the meantime, 22 years. Um, And they're always in my world. And they started this whole thing. And they give me a hard time about it all the time. So that's sort of how I ended up in it. And it just grew from there of more and more people. But the important thing for me, I was incredibly fortunate that I was also in the world and racing it. And I had some very good results. And so people were curious as to what I was doing. And therefore, it also fed the coaching. But then also those three started having better results. And then they told their three. And next thing you know, it it just grew from there. So what I would recommend for you is to become, this is the only path I know, is to become really good at the events you're doing. Therefore, also be willing to share all that and help others all the time and then seeing you as a resource. And that's sort of how it worked for me. I was pretty decent in triathlon in the late 90s. Um, I'd done two Ironmans, maybe. Not a lot. So I was pretty new to this, two or three Ironmans. I, I, I qualified for Hawaii on my second one. No, I qualified for Hawaii on my first one, but I couldn't go because my buddy had a a wedding the same weekend on another Hawaiian island. But that's a good story for another time. Um, But I accepted the slot thinking that I could get to Hawaii. I was like, ah, it's Hawaii. What's Maui to the big island? (laughs) 
not thinking that I'd finish the Ironman at like seven o'clock at night and had to be at a wedding the next morning on Maui. Anyway, um, so from there, I was successful and had a couple of good results. And so then these three friends of mine who were training with me a fair amount anyway, were curious as to say, hey, what are you doing? Can we train with you? And what is it you're doing with your training? And how are you coming up with your training? And from there, it just grew. So similarly for you, I would say, get really good at this 24 hour event, feel good, be positive, have good energy, and people will feed on that. And they'll be curious as to how you could do a 24 hour event, having visualized it all in your head prior, and then still have this positive giving energy to others. And that will attract people in general to wait. Not only did she do a 24 hour event, not only did she, does she have PTSD, but she also could deal with it so well. There's something there. I'm curious to learn more. That's the only way I would know how, because that's the only way it worked for me. Now there's plenty of coaches out there that don't have a lot of results, but are great coaches, but how they went about it and their certification and how they studied and exercise physiology and how they built their, not only resume with athletes, but also their athlete book. I don't know. I don't have a good idea for you on that. And uh, finally, in this email and a suggestion, I know if you asked if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, Brad Snyder, not sure if you've heard of him. He published a book a couple years back and is incredibly inspirational. He's a para swimmer, and I think you would have a fun time chatting with him. I don't know how these things work, but here's my he is my suggestion. Well, if anybody has any way for me to get in touch with Brad Snyder, other than just send him a random email out of the blue, um, let me know. I'd love to have him on the podcast and talk, and para swimmer sounds really interesting to have on the podcast. So, all right, that's another email. I received a question today about heart rate zones, and I know there's still a lot of confusion around this, so I just wanted to clear it up real quickly with um, answering the question the way it came across in the email. My understanding of threshold pace, okay, so I should explain threshold pace in here is what I gave the athlete, not one of my athletes, but somebody who had reached out with their five by one mile test. I gave them the input that clearly at a pretty constant number, it looked like they had a threshold pace. And so I said, that's your threshold pace. Maybe their coach or what they're using for training requires some threshold pace. So I often include that with athletes, but usually I go by heart rate. The athlete then asked, my understanding of threshold pace is that it is the pace at which lactate in the blood stays constant. When you train faster, the lactate keeps building up faster than it is broken down by the liver. That is not threshold pace. Threshold pace is known as anaerobic threshold. And that is a point at which the body is accumulating lactate so quickly that it can no longer flush it out or process it or deal with it. And you are not long to the muscles not able to contract and expand the way they need to for effective power. Threshold um, pace um, is not where the lactate in the blood stays constant. No way. Um, there's always lactate in the blood, even at very, very, very low intensities when we're sitting around. There's a little bit of lactate in the blood. It's just part of our physiological process. As exercise or as resistance work increases, 
lactate accumulates. But most of the time, it's processed by the body and therefore is negligible. Now, the first signs of lactate accumulation, aerobic threshold often known as, is where it is a noticeable increase in lactate, still being processed. Now, that can be a 2.0 millimole of lactate of liter per liter of blood, excuse me. Could be a little bit higher, could be a little bit lower. It's all relative to the numbers you're starting at. Then what many exercise physiologists use, I don't. The 4.0 number is usually where they like to identify lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold, LT, all the same thing. And that is usually the point where, yes, the lactate accumulating in the blood can no longer be flushed, processed um, as quickly, as efficiently, and therefore it is exponentially rising which means in a stage or two, meaning another stage of the test or another longer bout of effort, your lactate will accumulate so much that it limits the effectiveness and strength and the efficiency of your muscle movement and power it generates. So to recap there real clearly, threshold pace is not where the it stays constant in the blood. Threshold pace is where the lactate accumulates so dramatically that you're not long before the muscle wants to stop doing the workload it needs to be doing. What a lot of people mix that up with is OBLA, onset of blood lactate accumulation. And again, we're getting a little into the weeds here, but for those of you that are interested in, just because it's accumulating doesn't mean it can't be processed right? So there's technically lactate accumulation at very low wattages or running paces because ever so gently the lactate is increasing in the blood system. It's a byproduct of exercise um, activity. And so therefore, our body, as it gets fitter and fitter, has the ability to process and use that lactate and filter out that lactate and flush out that lactate so that it doesn't accumulate to a point where it is limiting the power, the pace that we're running and so forth of the working muscles. And so let's not confuse OBLA, onset of blood lactate accumulation, LT, anaerobic threshold. Those are all um, synonyms for the same place on the lactate accumulation curve. So all to keep in mind. I hope that clears it up a little bit um, because this can get confusing. But the athlete also asked what those heart rate zones mean, him or her. Now the challenge here is that I don't know. It depends on the athlete, depends on the prescription, it depends on what they need in their training, how much zone two, how much zone three, how much zone four, what they're getting ready for, what their experience is, and so forth. When athletes just send me their five by one mile test, I from there just pull their zones. Zones and the data are irrelevant to the human being. They're just data and an interpretation of it. Now, when you throw in pace, you get a better understanding of what the athlete can do. But again, it's not necessarily that it paints a picture. It just gives us a snapshot of some data and the heart rate zones according to that. Then you need to train it and hopefully see an outcome that is better. What is the outcome that is better? Well, it could be at very similar heart rates, you're running a faster pace at the next test. 
because the test is a 90% almost all out effort, five by one mile with one mile, one minute rest. What you should be seeing is that when you run the test again in eight to 12 weeks or 16 weeks, you run at the same effort level, close to 100%, let's say 95%. You have the same recovery and you have the same number of repeats. Hopefully, the pace is faster and the heart rate is about where it was 12 to 16 weeks ago. It, in a perfect world, if you've had a dramatic improvement, also has a slightly lower heart rate and a faster pace. That means our heart has gotten stronger and more efficient, and our leg turnover, our running stride, and our fitness has also improved. But overall, in 12 to 16 weeks, the goal is to run faster at the same effort level, right? That's what we're doing in our training, in our events, and as we're getting ready to race. Racing is your ability to go at a strong effort faster. That's why we train. That's the whole purpose of training. So I hope that helps. Hi, Chris. I've been listening to your podcast for about a year and appreciate your dedication towards helping us amateur ultra endurance athletes. I've just turned 30 and completed my first Ironman in Bustleton. Western Australia in December last year. What a day and a journey leading up to it. I've had an ongoing hip niggle which flares up when playing tennis. Lateral movements. It was present during Ironman training, but not enough to affect training. Since Bustleton, I definitely have the ultra-endurance bug, but I feel if I were to push through volume for another event, my hip will become more of a problem. Here's my plan, in which I would like your thoughts. Strength train my body, specifically the chassis and become more flexible to be able to handle any challenge sport that comes up. I've basically dropped all volume of running and have replaced it with chassis flexibility training. Lower back, glute, hamstrings, core. As for flexibility, I want to be able to comfortably deep squat barefoot as I think that is a good measuring stick for the lower body. True. I'm most definitely in this endurance game for the long haul, and I'm willing to focus on my niggles and balances before I jump into another challenge. Let me know what you think of my master plan. P.S. I've enjoyed your podcast with Tim DeBoom. More interviews like that would be great, which I'm planning. All right, so you're just turned 30. So you have 30 years of ultra endurance, fitness, training, events, adventures, expedition ahead of you. So yes, it is a good time to think of this and wonder how you can make your body more durable and stronger. And strength training is surely part of that program. But don't overlook that if you plan to do one of those three sports or all three of the sports of triathlon, you want to stay connected to the movement, neuromuscularly firing and engaging with the strength that you're building and the chassis integrity that you're um, providing is important. Now, it doesn't have to be a lot of volume, like you said. Um, I think you said, uh, I've dropped all flexibility. Um, If I were to push through the volume, um, I've basically dropped all volume of running and I've replaced it with chassibility. So I would definitely think about or consider continuing to run post a good strength training day, just a 30 minute run and consider continuing to swim and cycle to stay connected to those movements. Because what any older athlete will tell you, 40s and 50s, 
is that they wish they would have stuck to the consistency of said activity in order to remain um, efficient and connected to that neuromuscular memory and that firing and that chain that we want to stay really in tune with. The more years that you can do said activity of, let's say, running easy with good form, cycling easy with light and high cadence, swimming smooth with good technique and form, despite and whilst doing the strength and durability and flexibility and chassis work is, in my opinion, the ideal balance between the two. Now, nothing overboard. You don't have to go on a five-hour run in order to do this. Um, 45 minutes here and there, 30 minutes here and there, multiple times a week is plenty. Cycling the same way, you know, an hour to an hour and a half a couple times a week is great if you get that in. And swimming also two times a week is also great. Now, I just listed a bunch of workouts plus strength and plus chassis. That's a lot of time. But I'm just saying that's sort of the perfect world to be in. Um, Plus, you also want to consider strength training that many days a week. Is it really going to have the full absorption adaptation effect that you're looking for? Also, there are plenty of solid, very solid physical therapists and those in that industry that can help you address and build that strength around that hip and that weakness and that blind spot in your chain of strength in your body. So don't just look at it from one angle. Think about other things that you can do with it along the way. Um, Flexibility is always good. And strength in this case is always good. If your future desired outcome is to go along, you want to stay connected and continue to put in the hours of repetition of the sport and activity you want to do. It's just sort of, there's no way around it. And if you give up two, three, four years here now of building a stronger body, great. That's a great idea. But don't give up two, three, four years of running. Frequency, short time on the legs, good form, but staying connected to the running form or swimming form or cycling form is what I would recommend. A lot of running emails this week, a lot of heart rate zone questions and a lot of running questions. So let's dive into the next one. Uh, Hi, Chris. Thank you for continuing to share your expertise in a free platform such as a podcast. Your words are not only inspiring, but make me a better athlete. Good. The background remains the same. I'm 29 plant-based, 183, 69 kilograms. I was never a sporty person growing up. (laughs) I like that, sporty. And I ran the occasional 10Ks in my early adulthood. You're 29. How much adulthood do you have? uh, It was only in the last two years that I took up running a bit more seriously. I completed my first half marathon in September of last year. Great North Run in Newcastle upon Tyne. Cool. I will be doing my first marathon in April, very much inspired by you as well as Sonny's story. I I started training for this a couple months ago and have been spending a lot of time in Z2. I followed your advice and went back to the track with a heart strap. If you could calculate my heart rate zones, that would be great. See attached. My questions for the Weekly Word podcast are related to training for a marathon, but I think it might generate a bit of discussion. You often talk about how important it is to emulate the course of the race in your training. If it is a hilly course, you should work on those hills. How about when the course is flat? Should your training still have hill reps? Or should you focus on 
more on the speed sessions alongside time in zone two? Very good question. So hills only make you stronger, right? And they change the position of how your legs push off because there's an incline. So you're recruiting a different group of muscles in your legs, as well as stride length, as well as how you're driving forward, as well as pacing, as well as oxygen consumption, because you're using bigger muscles because you're going uphill, things like that. All this, though, can help you run better on the flats, hence why hill repeats are quite a popular way to get in intensity, get in strength, get in VO2 max, get in just pure power. And so, yes, you don't want to do all your running on, for a flat marathon on flat because A, it's quite boring, and B, you want to take advantage of being stronger to make the flat miles feel easier, come easier to you, allow the stride to happen more naturally, more powerfully. And again, the goal with any ultra endurance event or endurance event is to get as far into the event as possible into your race, into your event, into your adventure, without having to engage the switch, right? The tax on the body where you really need to become mental and really focus on getting your performance that you're looking for in time for the finish line. So if you're stronger and fitter and prepared for a hilly course and it's flatter, it means you can get further into the event into the marathon without asking your body to do extra work with regards to mental engagement, with regards to focusing on form and technique. You want to get as far into the event running on feel, running on joy, running on fitness, running relaxed, running with a good stride as you can. And then when it gets hard, hopefully at mile you know, 22 or 23, that's a really good day. <laughs> um, then you flip that switch on and you drive it to the finish. If it's at mile 18, all right, well, you still have a, you know, eight miles to go and you want to really drive into the finish and stay engaged and mentally be strong in order to manage yourself. But yes, the hill work can only help you, help your stride, help your efficiency, help your work in all kinds of ways in order to make you a better runner overall. So the second question here, I've been reading a lot about the maximum distance one should run in preparation for a marathon. Some people suggest up to 20 miles. Do you have an idea? Would 16 miles be enough for your longest run? For many of my athletes, their longest run is 16 miles. It depends on what kind of volume you've done leading into your training, um, what you've done for past marathons, um, how long your training plan is, if you've done many, many, many weeks, meaning therefore many months of steady, consistent 12 to 16 mile runs, then yeah, of course we can ask the body to do a build up to 18 to 20 miles. If our training has been limited and sort of an entry level plan and we're trying just to get in the, the time here and there, well then 16 miles is already going to take a long time and we want to be smart on the recovery it takes from those 16 miles. So it depends. I have athletes who get ready for a marathon and that are quite fast. Well, we do 20 mile runs. Yes, we build up to a 20 mile run, maybe three of them or two of them. Again, with those speed sections in between and some tempo work and faster than marathon gold pace work. But for others, 16. Yeah, that's all we get to. Because again, we want to make sure that you're healthy at the start line so that you can have the best possible day then 
not on some training day and no niggles and are fresh and are motivated. And yeah, 16, you say, well, I still have 10 miles to go. What about that? Well, with a good training plan and good freshness and being healthy, you should be able to get to 14 or 15 miles pretty comfortably. And then if you have to engage as of mile 17 or 18, because you trained through 16, well, training 16 on in a training day means you did training during the week, which means you're fatigued coming into the 16, which means when you're fresh and in a race, hopefully that freshness and your training carries you to 18 or 19 or even 20 because you didn't have training that much that week and you're fresh and you're healthy and so forth. So now you only have six miles to go. So it depends. It depends on the athlete. Many athletes need to have a a really long run in order to build up their own confidence, knowing that they can do it. If this is a question, if you can do it, will I be able to complete a marathon? Well, then, yeah, you probably want to work your way up to a higher number so that you feel confident on race day that you can actually do the distance. But if it's not a question of doing the distance, then I think you're fine with doing what you need in order to be the fittest and freshest on race day come that day. And final question, last one, I've been working on the four by two, four by three, and four by four workouts for my long run, as you mentioned in a previous podcast. Yes, now I know what you're talking about. I like the idea of starting at a conservative pace and then increase increase my speed, 15 seconds in each section. However, in the last few miles, I get carried away and always run them 15 seconds quicker than planned. Is it harmful for my body? Does this mean I should start at a quicker pace? Or should I just stick to the plan and not my mood at the time. I find the last miles invigorating, and if I do them quicker, but don't really want to risk an injury. Yeah, I would um, recommend start a little bit quicker than planned. So do the math backwards and see how you hold up if you start at a faster pace, because again, at miles three or four into the four by four or four by three, you will notice because you started quicker, the fatigue will be higher and you will be therefore (laughs) not able to do it as smoothly or as um, invigorated as you wrote. But yeah, overall, it's not a big deal. But again, you want to know all the details and sensations of your body as it's going through these um, race simulations and tempo days like you are doing. And blowing it out or doing it a bit too fast on the back end is a question of then are all four that successful are all four by threes or four by twos that successful if so then you're being too conservative yeah then you need to tighten that up in order to have an even narrower range and start faster in order to not have that much extra energy but again depends on your desired outcome if your race pace is x and you're going faster than x and that comes too easy something to consider for sure. I'm looking forward to the heart rate zones and answers. Also very excited with all the suggested changes for the format of the podcast. All right. I hope that answers that. Um, With any of these questions, if I haven't gotten back to you on the heart rate zones, let me know and I will get them to you. I oftentimes put these emails into a folder to be answered on the podcast, but I forget if there's heart rate zones in there that I might not have answered the heart rate zones. And here I am talking about all the other questions. So please let me know. All right, let's dive right into another email here. 
Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for the podcast. I'll start from the beginning. 63, surfed lifelong, just since runner in my youth. Had a stroke last summer. Quit meat, dairy, sugar, and vices. Started plant-based diet and running. At first, very poorly. Graduated, improved. Uh, graduated. Gradually improved. Began to get stoked. Running improved. Now I'm at seven-mile runs. Resting pulse 58. I follow a self-made program for fast days, long days, rest days. I try very hard to listen to my body. It works. Two weeks ago on a long run, seven-miler, I started to get a side ache. I'm guessing my mistake now was not stopping. Took a few days off, then tried a shorter run, pain back. Took more time off, then took a long walk, and then a short jog back. Pain came back. Now I'm stuck as to how to rehabilitate my oblique and not strain the muscle. Any suggestions on this would be very helpful. Unfortunately, Jeff, in this case, with your oblique muscle strain, or if that's the exact diagnosis, I'm not sure if you uh, had a doctor look at it. I am not a doctor. And so I know you're just asking for advice or any recommendations on things like that. It takes a while. It just takes a while for the body to work things out. And I say this to a lot of my athletes, you know, give it time, let it rest. Currently, I have a hamstring issue that's pulling on my knee as well as um, below my left glute. Sort of, as Emily says, empathy pain for her left hamstring. But yeah, I just sort of need to tiptoe around it, need to figure out other things to do. I can hike with the dogs. I can do loaded work. It's just when I move to running, it is bothering me. And, you know, given the current environment, I was going to take the month off of running and just swim a lot and do some other strength work and specific work. But, you know, with everything shut down these days and our um, pools not available and so forth, as, as we already discussed, you know, I wanted to run, but I can't. And it, you know, it's beautiful out. It's rained. The trails are soft. The air is clean. It is crisp. It is beautiful spring-like cooler but spring like running and I can't and it bums me out now can I cycle yes can I hike yes can I do strength yes can I swim open water yes can I do dry land yes can I do gravel biking yes so there's other things to do and the same thing for you Jeff look at all the things you can do and focus on that maybe this is a transition or in a few years from now you say yeah, I couldn't run, but I switched to X or I started doing this or I focused on that. And you might have found either a new discipline, sport, way to stay active, reintroduced yourself to different types of strength, maybe um, surfed more. But yeah, currently, unfortunately, on something like this, I would say you have to rest it or, um, you know, and increase the gaps or give yourself a full month off. The running fitness and what you can do with your running and the health benefits of running are not going to go anywhere. You're 63. You're only going to continue to see benefits from eating healthier, exercising more, and being outdoors and being more active. Whether you take a month off of that now and are doing long walks and surfing and doing different things, that's not going to change that your long-term projection over the next few years is you are going to continue to get your body healthier and reset it and create a better platform for longevity, especially into your 70s, than um, 
one month now of frustration. And I commend you to be on this healthy, right track. I commend you for taking a sense of urgency now towards a better future, your 70s and 80s, to be stronger, more vibrant, more capable, more flexible, more fit, right? But don't um, look too short-term and allow that to recover, rebuild itself, and again, create opportunity out of adversity. Something will present itself out of this time for all of us, as I keep talking about, where we might come out of this going, yeah, it was a weird time, but look what I discovered. Look what I was reintroduced to. Look what I was introduced to. Um, Look where I was able to focus my attention on this. Use this time um, where you're down with your oblique strain to maybe discover cycling, maybe discover mountain biking, gravel biking, um, a variety of different sports. Maybe you want to jump in the pool and do some swimming. So not sure on how much the oblique strain will affect all those things, but you get the drift and what I'm trying to say. So hopefully you heal soon. And unfortunately, I don't have any better advice other than rest, um, truly. All right, this next one looks like a longer email. In this case, I printed it out. (laughs) Not that it's that long, but it's easier to keep things going here. I was just listening to episode 125 with interest to your step approach. I previously emailed you with regards to working out my heart rate zones towards the middle of end to end of last year. Your heart rate zones allowed me to end the year continuing to build capacity, even pressure, even pressure on myself to build capacity and even pressure on myself. Thank you. To give you some context about me, I'm a runner of around 10 years, picked up the sport as a way to lose weight. At that point in time, I was severely obese, and it's not an exaggeration to say that I was on the road to death. Since then, I've run over 100 full-distance marathons and several 100-mile ultras. Wow, it's a pretty awesome story. I have a 5K personal record of 2005, full-distance marathon records of 329, and 100-mile personal record of 22 hours. Solid. I completed my first Ironman last year, completed it in 13 hours. Given running running is my primary sport, I made some great inroads with swimming and especially the bike. My A goal was to finish feeling good and enjoying the day. I hope you did. After a year of training in Zone 2 using the Fink training plan, I had one of the best athletic days of my life. Best days of my athletic life. It was amazing and utterly unforgettable. I'm currently entering a new phase of my life this year as my wife and me are expecting our first child. Congratulations. To allow that leg of my life to balance, I'm anticipating much shorter distance for the next few years. The end of last year, I very much focused on enjoying shorter, relatively quicker runs. Cool. This was an important step. This was an important step for me as I could feel my inner monkey, super go, super ego, super go, um, critique this. Many years of running consistently 35 to 40 miles per week and then dropped to 20 or less was very tricky emotionally. Step to manage physically with me, weight management, and also in my mind. I'm going to use this next few years to focus on long-held desire to work on my 5K time. It's currently at 20.05, as we said. 
My dream currently is to go sub 20. But I not, do not wish to stop there. I believe very much that I will. It's not a case of if. There we go. See, second page. <laughs> I listened to, with, uh, to interest with... I listen to interest. Would you describe your step training program? See, this is why I sometimes struggle with reading these emails because they're written many times pretty fast. And so the wording I sort of have to put together. Um, I listen to interest. Would you describe your step training plan? That's the sentence. <laughs> it jumped out at me as I am indeed commencing something very similar independently on my own. When you asked for emails to be sent, in to see if you can help. Obviously, I jumped at the chance. Currently, I run three runs a week. Tuesday evening are my speed session. Thursdays are slightly longer capacity building sessions remaining in zone two. Saturdays, I run a longer distance effort, which includes a relatively tempo effort at the local park run that happens to here in England. To detail the sessions more specifically, I will discuss a few weeks ago. Tuesday was around 30 minutes. This was through an undulating wooded area. Each five minute period had four minutes zone two, one minute zone four. Okay, in total around six minutes effort at approximately Z4 within the 30 minutes. Thursday was around 30 minutes in total on the similar undulating course remaining at zone two. Due to the undulation, my heart rate picked up to zone four. Saturday was around 10 miles. First three remained in zone two in the middle 3.1 miles, 5K, was a very was a tempo effort in zone 3-4. Final miles were zone 2 cooldown miles. Although this can be tricky as my heart rate can sometimes remain high due to the effort in the middle. This has been my training plan for around the last month. This past week, I ran 130 efforts on Tuesday, 55 minutes zone 2 on Thursday, and quicker effort on Saturday with relatively similar effort. This shows I think this shows a training response. So my questions, here we go. I've been close before hitting the magical land of sub 20 for 5K when training for longer distance. I know I can do this with a razor sharp focus. How can I move on this? The following questions buzz around my head when I'm running. Do I need more speed work? Yes. <laughs> do I need longer Z2 capacity building? Yes. Can I run up hills even if I tap into Z4 plus? Yes. Do I need to keep in the middle of zone two or upper end of zone two? Does that not matter? Keep what in the middle of zone two, upper end of zone two, or does that not matter? Depends on the workout and the stimulus. Do I need to go above race pace? Yes. That's 620 a mile. Should I, should my tempo efforts be six or under? Does it matter? Yes. So it's, I'll go into those questions in a moment. I just want to finish the email. I've noticed tail offs in speed sessions such as per rep as the session progresses 655 effort 701 effort 707 effort this was a flat course peak speed was achieved during first mile should my session be longer and look to get quicker as it progress okay should my sessions see here we go again <laughs> i know it's not the person writing it it's just they're writing their thoughts and they're writing quickly. So this isn't in any criticism. I'm just trying to explain why I sound like such a dingbat reading these emails. Should my sessions my longer and look to get quicker <laughs> as they progress or is this a capacity issue? 
<laughs> I love that. Should my sessions my longer and look to get quicker as they progress? Or is this time? Is this a capacity issue? That's why I struggle reading this. Um, I have no idea what that means. I'm sorry to throw loads of questions at you. But this email have been in my driest section a month or so. <laughs> My basic question is, using Zone 2 training with somewhat restricted time, what could should be the training week look like if there's the athletic ability in the past which shows a potential? All right, so long lead-in, very long lead-in to 5K training. So high level here. Let's keep in mind, back away from 3.1 miles, it's a 5,000-meter race, right? Especially in England. You're familiar with meters in the metric system. Um, absolutely, you need to get your body ready for VO2 max and zone five work. So your ability to tolerate the highest level of lactate accumulation, what we talked about earlier, and sustain that lactate buffering as well as the VO2 max effort as long as possible and while holding off the legs not expanding and contracting towards the end of that 5,000 meters as best as possible. I would for sure do leg turnover work. I would sure do strength work in the gym. I would truly get on the track weekly I would truly still do an undulating rolling zone two course for endurance, but endurance being relative for a 20 minute event, endurance is 45 minutes to 60 minutes. It doesn't need to be anything much longer. Um, Saturday was around 10 miles. So 10 miles is 16 kilometers, which is 300% of the distance. Not really needed. Um, so rather spend that time differently. And um, because you're only running what looks like three times a week, this will be challenging so that you want to go through different phases of the training too. Step training is not ideal here because, yeah, you can repeat your three limited 30 minutes, 45 minute workouts a week, but this it's too little training to look for adaptations properly in that. If that makes sense, step training makes sense if you're doing 12, 14 workouts a week, combining a variety of inputs that are measurable and consistent so that you can, you can keep those the same and watch your body improve its efficiency and economy within that, as we were talking about from the strength training world and so forth. So let's not combine those two. Um, I would focus surely on speed work. So back to those questions. Do I need more speed work? Yes. The track and leg turnover and stride length and strength is critical for the 5,000 meter. Um, strength in general in the gym and stretching and dynamic work and explosive work and um, 100 meter sprints to get the leg turnover up and bounding and again, um, hamstring strength in order to get that kick behind us. Very powerful. I mean, there's a lot happening. The 5,000 meter is a brutally hard event, the 5K. And so best prep for that needs to be like a track training workout, which I don't actually have a lot of um, expertise. We can even take expertise off the um, vocabulary. I don't have a lot of experience with. I've done some, um, but not a lot. And um, and yes, those were, were, were faster than 20 minutes. But again, you're I'm dealing with 
athletes who then have more time to train. So do you need speed work? I for sure would work on track work once a week, leg turnover, 45 minutes to an hour at the track, a lot of rest, a lot of very fast, explosive, powerful work, um, a lot of sitting around and stretching and prepping and mentally preparing for the next bout difficult effort. There's a classic example of training for something where you go hard on hard days. I mean, we're talking very hard workouts. These leave you exhausted because of the effort, because of how deep you're digging on hard days and easy on easy days. So yes, you get your day off in between, which is an easy day, but also then your zone two easy jog days to continue the endurance work um, needs to truly be zone two relaxed. And if the heart rate isn't coming down, yeah, you have to walk. That's another way of testing fitness. Um, do I need a longer zone two capacity building? Uh, hard to say because I would not overlook the fact that you are only getting ready for a 20 minute event. So your ability to be comfortably in zone two for an hour um, is plenty. Um, good form, light on feet, and watching that pace come down is also helpful. So that will help build your competence. Uh, competence, yes, and confidence. Um, can I run hills even if I tap in a zone four plus? Absolutely. Explosive, high leg turnover, puking hard. Hill repeats, great for this because again, you translate to the flat road and track that power you will see speed gains. Um, and again, you're thinking leg turnover. You are thinking a steady leg turnover for 20 minutes. If that cadence, your run cadence stays high for all 5,000 meters, 3.1 miles, you will have a successful time. I guarantee you on the time splits you sent me here with the 655, 701, and 707, if you analyze your stride, you will see that your leg turnover cadence gently decreased. So oftentimes we don't necessarily run out of strength and power and fitness. Um, we learn run out of energy in order to keep the cadence high enough, if that makes sense. So cadence is something I would focus on. And that might be the third workout you're doing a week um, where you focus on run cadence and you're doing cadence drills where you're, you know, four times five minutes of my 5k cadence, you know, if that's 95 or 96 is pretty high with five minutes, easy jog, walk, rest. Um, so now we just did a um, 40 minute run, whereby five minutes is pretty strong effort, necessarily not as hard, because you're doing the cadence, not necessarily the effort. So you could be doing running some downhill sections to get the cadence that high without the effort that high. If you have maybe an 800 meter or a thousand meter stretch that's gently downhill, let's say uh, 1% or 2%, even a treadmill is great for this and work on leg speed, leg turnover. Um, or you could do it on a treadmill in general where you go, you know, uh, you bring the the speed, the leg speed up, whatever the speed on the treadmill is for that at 0% incline. And um, let's say 10 or 11 miles per hour or whatever it needs to be. I think you said 620 pace or something is what you're trying to run. So that you bring it to you know, six minute mile pace, which is the a 10 on most treadmills. And then in the US, I'm not sure about the UK. 
and then you quickly recover at you know five minute miles or six minute miles so nice uh, um at 10 minute miles excuse me so nice and easy but again once you're up on speed you are at high speed high turnover in the mode again increasing the time that you're able to withstand and um, adapt and absorb the effort of what a 5k will be um where we are. do i need to keep it in the middle of zone two or upper end of zone two or does that not matter well um this is uh, i'm not sure for what and which distance and so forth so and then uh, do i need to go above race pace that's a 620 mile should my tempo efforts be six or under does it matter well tempo is hard to relatively if your zone three nets you 620 per mile then you're pretty stoked so i'm not sure why tempo efforts need to be at six or under remember tempo is a sustainable pace for about 90 minutes to two hours so i'm not sure if your tempo efforts be under six that'd be pretty awesome then you're not struggling to run 620 per mile for three miles so um, let's break that down. Do I need to go above race pace? Absolutely. You need to spend some time in the 550s and 545s. You know, you should be able to simulate 800 meters at 545. Um, that's actually a great workout. Let's say six times 800, right? That's 4,800 meters, of which 800 at 545, 800 at, let's say, 745 pace. That's slow. And then right back into 800 sub six pace, and then recovery. And so now you just did half of the distance, 2,400 meters at sub six. Those are things where you're building that tolerance, that resistance and that buffering in order for the body to withstand doing the whole thing. Um, that's a 620 mile. Should my tempo efforts be six or under? Tempo should for you at zone three, um, depending whatever the heart rate is therefore for that is number one. And number two important is, to understand that the tempo should be what the heart rate tells you it is and watch how that gets better as your fitness efficiency economy improve at that heart rate so i think that answers most of it i mean it's hard to just give blanket advice here on how to uh, train for a 5k without knowing more and seeing more and history and how long ago that 5k was and so but I think there's plenty of tidbits in there and ideas and thoughts in there that are worth it. And then also, finally, don't overlook strength. On those other days, maybe at home, because you have a young child or expecting a child, that you get a chance to really do some home strength. Buy a kettlebell, um, a box, um, a vest, and a mat. And with that at home, in a very small space, um, maybe two meters by two meters, you can do a ton of strength work um, for this running effort and never leave the house and be available. Um, so as a matter of fact, for those of you listening that are interested in, in, in setting up some sort of home gym like this that is optimized, let's say, for running, I will gladly help you with that if you send me a note or a question and we can go through that and if i get enough of it if it's something you're interested in 
Um, I can even post that online so that you guys can just use that list and that sort of description to your advantage and take it and go buy from wherever you get your things. But um, I'd, be, I'd be glad to do that. So I hope that helps. All right, another email we have here. Hi, Chris. Thanks for all that you do. Your podcast has had a huge impact on my training and goals. Thank you. Just a quick question about the step-ups. In the podcast, you mentioned how stepping down off the box would help with the downhills. Does this mean that you step off the box in a forward direction? Sort of an up and over turnaround and repeat motion? Um, I have only done or seen step-ups where you step off the box backwards. I hope this question makes sense. I think I understand what you're asking about. Step downs are important. So you could use a bench, you can use a box, you can use whatever you use for step ups, get the full hip extension at the top. So you step up, both legs are up, hip extension, and then step down, moving forward over the box, you know, past the box. It's not like you're turning around up there. I mean, you can, but it seems to be more fluid and steady and allows for the training to just continue in a fluid format by um, stepping up and stepping down on the other side of the box, turning around, stepping up, stepping over, stepping down on the other side of the box, and so forth. I would do the turning around at the bottom, not at the top. Um, yeah, so I hope that helps. The important thing is when you do step-ups, one, always start unloaded um, in warm-up as well as um, as you're progressing through step-ups and get good at full step-up, then full hip extension, standing upright straight, and then the next step forward off the box, off the bench, whatever it is, is sort of that um, leg extends out over no man's land and goes down um, with the load still being um, properly balanced on your back. You don't want to lean forward into it is what I'm saying and put your knee further forward than your foot, if that makes sense. It's important that your knee and your foot are in alignment, sort of um, above each other. I would say you don't want your knee going ahead of your toe, of your longest toe or your second longest toe, whatever, um, as you go down. That's the important thing. Most people do the step up form quickly, correctly. It might take a small adjustment, but the step down form becomes a little bit more complicated. A, knee over foot um, or knee beyond foot. We don't want that. And leaning forward so that there's too much load on the knee with the loaded step down is also careful. So you could start with a lower height and then do the step up, step downs, and that routine better, and then step higher. Or you can be very diligent on staying non-loaded for as long as possible, or longer than you think, and then gradually bring up the loaded aspect. Um, dumbbells are great for this. Um, backpack works, but again, it's not as balanced. And what I also like to do with dumbbells or kettlebells is sort of bring the shoulder rotation into the 
uh, format as well. So that when my left leg goes forward, my right arm is bringing the dumbbell slash kettlebell forward with it. So that I'm sort of keeping the core and the torso twist engaged, similar to the hiking and the running we do uphill. So, and similarly, with the downhill stepping, you'll see you want to be smart about how that foot extends out with weight in your hands. It's not an easy process. So you need to be very strong already in order to do loaded step downs. Um, and it's hard for me to give these too much as advice on the podcast because, again, there is a high level of injury risk in this and with good form and good technique hopefully you can find some on the world of youtube where you get some good insight on this but that is what i had in mind or that's what i do step over the box via a double step at the top meaning the double step is where the one foot and the other foot are both aligned hip extension then the other leg does the next step down so you're rotating so I hope that helps. Well, let's close this episode 130. We've done plenty of questions. And as I'm recording, it takes me a few days. Obviously, there's a lot going on. Kids home and caretaking for Emily as well as the current environment. But things are just unfolding. And I wouldn't say the words getting worse as a description, but getting more difficult. And I've received a lot of questions from my athletes of how to manage the next weeks ahead, given that the kids are home from school and we are home from work and or spouses are home from work as well, even college kids home. So all of a sudden we have these full homes. We can't really train as in go to swimming pools. In some situations, you are in a cold environment still where you can't really be outdoors all the time. So with all this, with all that's going on, how do we balance the three-legged stool, manage it all, family, career from home, and then our own self-care? Well, the most important component to start is to understand we don't want training, our time, to contribute to our current fatigue, life fatigue. We need to accept that and focus on getting the training, that day's workout or workouts in, it's about consistency first and then the actual deliberate outcome of this session. So if struck between a choice, between training and not training, since it might not go as well as planned or written as in the training plan, choose training at least, even if it was just easy. We can and will add more deliberate training when life and the days free up in a few or many weeks. As I was just writing to an athlete, this might be a wedge month, not just a wedge week. But again, let's not have our training create the life fatigue. We have plenty of that. We have plenty of external stressors coming in. And let's use our training time as our personal sanctuary, where we get a chance to get outdoors, to breathe the fresh air, to care for ourselves and our thoughts, which is important as well. And of course it will be hard, and our patience will be tested the next few weeks. But as I keep saying, we are the endurance athletes so many look at, the energizer bunnies that get it all done, where others comment on how we get it all done, 
Again, it doesn't necessarily need to be high quality workouts as written in the training plan. It might just be easy, but easy feels so good at times of high stress and high um, uh, uh, or low patience, high stress, low patience. It will require even more clarity, purpose, and intention over the next few weeks. Clarity of how you want your day to go. Envision it, lay it out, write it out the night before that first time in the morning. Purpose on why our training is important in contributing to an overall better you in these challenging days. Intention in being fully in what we are currently doing. If you are training, train. And again, I'm not saying add the intensity, but just think about good breathing, relaxed motions, exhaling, allowing your body to settle into activity. But when you're not training, don't overthink it. Don't worry about it. Be fully present in your work from home or in your family that's at home and so forth. If we choose to do it, then do it right. That's what we are thinking about with intention. Which brings me to my final point. These next few weeks, your, our focus will be on the buckets of time, on how we diligently stick to them, our priorities, will become even more critical. And what I am spending my time on right now, the best use of my time, is this helping one of my three legs of the stool progress? Am I serving my family, my profession, my athletic self, my community, etc. with this what I'm currently doing? If you can't answer yes, you will want this time back. Am what I doing Progressing my family, my career, my three-legged stool, whatever it is, forward. And even if it's not forward, am I at least being present? Am I spending time on the buckets I want to be spending my time with, which I had clarified earlier in the day? Don't lose your time in this crazy busy time with family home and profession at home and so forth. Don't lose time because then at the end of the day, you will be frustrated that you missed some sort of self-care time. That's why we're all listening. We already all think about this anyway. How will I get in some sort of training? Even if at this time, it's some sort of exercise, some sort of movement, a hike, or anything outdoors, some time for self-care, for elevated heart rate, in order to exhale. You will want this time. As our patience wears thin, as we get that life fatigue I mentioned, the confidence of knowing you got your essential things done each day will be a huge victory. Ideally, your training, your self-care happens first thing in the morning so that you can focus on giving your best self to others the remainder of the day. But circumstances and life situations don't always work out ideally, but I believe all of you can and will figure out your daily grind through this. As I write in my workouts, a daily grind or grind is working steadily, not frantically. So in my thoughts for all of you, as we all work through this troubling wedge month or many weeks ahead, I want to close this episode 130 of the Weekly Word Podcast with a quote by one of my favorite German authors and poets. Within you, there's a stillness and a sanctuary to which you can retreat at any time and be yourself. Hermann Hesse. Have a great week, everybody.
and I'll be back on this podcast quite quickly as there's a lot of topics going around.